Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 51, The Dying Assyrian Empire. Previously on The Fan of History, the Assyrian Empire is collapsing under its own weight. Tormented by civil war, earthquakes, bad omens, and disease. Well, Dan, what can we expect from now? Well, this is the darkest hour of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But before we go there, I have to plug the Patreon. At patreon.com slash fanofhistory, you can support this podcast. At this time, I might have mentioned this before on the cast, but I am living as a podcaster YouTuber at this point. So... I'm getting all my income from YouTube and sponsors on Patreon for uh, podcasts. And um, some other podcasts are much more successful than this one, but I think we're doing a good thing here. And if you, the listener, think so too, you have the ability to support us on Patreon. And the way it works is that you name a sum you will contribute for every episode and then everything happens automatically. You can set limits. So like, uh, I don't want to sponsor Timeline or World History, the YouTube series, for example. Then you do like, I will sponsor two podcast episodes every month. But if we hit uh, $30 on Patreon, which I think we really should compared to what has happened to my other podcasts, <laughs> uh, we will go on beyond 701 BC, the destruction of Sennacherib. And if we hit $200, we will make this podcast weekly and come out every week. 
So please, if you like this, support us on Patreon. There is a link in the show notes as well. Yeah, we would yeah. very much appreciate it. Okay, so let's get into the 740s BC. All right, super, 740s. Yeah, super difficult time for the Assyrians. But before we address the empire, which we will, let's check in with some other kingdoms that are doing uh, much better. It's not that hard to do better than uh, the Assyrians <laughs> at this point. So uh, let's hear the king of the week. King of the week is Sarduri II of Urartu. So... Urartu is the most powerful state in the Near East. Sudari II is gathering allies to assault the dying empire to his south. He just needs to take care of a few little things first. But then it's soon time to slay some Assyrians. It sure is. I mean, 749 BC, he starts taking care of a few little things. He defeats Abiliani. Uh, he returns with his army to Abiliani and Eriaki. These are those small mountain kingdoms that are extremely hard to identify in the Caucasus. <laughs> but Sarduri II crushes these guys, and we've heard of uh, Abiliani before. There is a leader for Abiliani named Murini, and he submits and formally grasps Sarduri's knees, begging to be accepted as a vassal. Wow, <clears throat> that's <laughs> that's pretty telling. It is. Please. <laughs> I noticed something about these uh, small kingdoms that when they become Urartian vassals, they will revolt all the time, just like the Assyrian vassals. So I think the Urartians picked up their management skills from Assyria, which is probably not the right place to be looking at. <laughs> And we, as we mentioned before, we'll see a big shift in the revolt rate of vassal states when the Persians come around because they know how to treat their vassals right, which the Assyrians sort of never learn. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you don't, you don't bleed them dry every year and expect them to be happy about it. No, I think it, I think the problem has to be the, uh, the the rates, the the amount of tribute they have to pay every year, right? Forcing them into a situation where they can't be happy. So they because revolting against Urartu or against the Assyrian Empire when it's on its game seems crazy. It's like there's no way to get away with it. But right. when people still do it you realize that their situation must be horrible. Hmm. In 748 BC, Nabu dies. He is the king of Babylon. He is a Chaldean of the Bit-Dakuri tribe. There are three major Chaldean tribes, and the Bit-Dakuri were the ones in charge here. Uh, Nabu Shuma Ishkun ruled Babylon from 761 to 748 BC. Uh, it's pretty good to be rid of him for Babylon because he wasn't very good. Um, the theory in Babylon is that kingship is hereditary, but uh, it very rarely is. Because now a totally different guy takes over Babylon, and we don't know how, but we find that in four, uh, 748 BC, Nabonassar 
becomes the king of Babylon. And he's a native Mesopotamian, so he's not the tribesman. And the dynastic chronicle reports that the dynasty of Chaldea was terminated. But then the dynastic chronicle uh, sort of goes silent. <laughs> Uh, the Chaldeans ruled for 23 years here over Babylonia, and uh, this is very much the start of a new era. If you look at the Babylonic Chronicle and the Ptolemaic Canon, uh, canon uh, it, they begin with Nabonassar's ascension to the throne. Nabonassar also reforms the calendar, and there is a lunar eclipse that is mentioned in the records, and it happens on February the 6th, 746 BC. So this is very, very well dated. We know that this happened at this time. And that lunar eclipse begins a famous Babylonian list of celestial phenomena. So we, uh, we have fairly good sources here for Nabonassar's ascension. But of course, he's the king of Babylon, and that means that he has a world of problems. Because the Kassites are still in the eastern parts of Babylonia, the Chaldeans are in the south, the Assyrians are to the north, and the Arameans are freaking everywhere. But <laughs> Nabonassar will handle this, and he will pass on his throne to his son, which is then what should happen, but never does. Right. I was about to say, that's it shouldn't be, but that seems very unique for a king in this era. <laughs> It is super unique, especially for King of Babylon. Uh, it happens in other nations, but the, very rarely in Babylon. And we will look at how Nabonassar manages to do all this. There are 23 tablets found from this era that gives proof of economic recovery during this reign. So Nabonassar is doing a lot of things right. But I think he made a deal with the devil to get away with this. Uh-oh, sounds like foreshadowing. Yes, and we'll talk about Nabonassar's deal in the next episode. And who the devil is. Dun-dun-dun. In, dun. <laughs> in 748 BC, Saduri II of Iraq goes to war again. Uh, because at this point, Chaldi, the god of war, uh, the Urartian god of war, a carbon copy of Asher very much, uh, demands yearly campaigns, and we recognize that from the Assyrians. This year, Saduri II goes to the far north east of Yerevan, to the ancient region known as Etiuki, and he, he fights <laughs> against Ruishiani under its rulers Rashuni. He wins that fight and also defeats King Diusini of Ika. And this is the region of Lake Kildir, which exists, uh, or of course the lake exists, but it's named Lake Kildir today. Mm. Uh, this text is partially lost. We have pretty good records from Urartu from this time, and we do have the rock inscription at Dash Kerpi. And that is kind of famous. I want to talk a little about this rock text. Okay. Uh, this text is probably the end of the campaign from 748 BC, and it commemorates the conquest of Makalduni in the land of Iki. Ika. It, is, uh, it was found two kilometers west of Lake Kildir on the road to Ardahan, approaching the main pass into Georgia today. 
this is the most northern point ever demonstrably reached by an Urartian king. So this is the biggest, the sort of northernmost piece of evidence for Urartian expansion to the north. Uh, on the stone, Saduri II boasts that he took 115 camels as booty. What are the camels doing in the Caucasus? That's, that's, that's that, just, that seems strange. They wouldn't be that far. So some people think that this is evidence of uh, long-distance trade caravans and that there was actually trade with the steppes beyond the Caucasus. Oh, wow. And we'll find that Sarduri II will break other records for Urartian kings. So this is truly the golden age of Urartu. In 748 BC as well, the Assyrians goes on campaign. And this is the last Assyrian campaign before the big change. It's uh, against a place called Namar. We don't know anything about the campaign, pretty much. Uh, the empire is lashing out from its deathbed. We, it's disorganized, there's plague, there is civil unrest. But there is a campaign in 748 BC and it lasts for two years. And it's uh, targeting uh, this, uh, it's probably targeting Namri. So Namar is Namri. Okay. Uh, and that's the foothill kingdom of the Kassites in sort of the border region to Babylon. Because the Kassites have their own kingdom now, as we talked about before. But this is the last campaign of the reign of Ashurnirari V, the Assyrian king. And uh, we'll get back to the Assyrians, but they won't do anything for 747 or 746. In 748 BC, we have the Eighth Olympiad. So All it's right. Olympic Games time. And a guy called Antikles of Messenia wins the stadium race. It seems that the Messenians, which are located on the west of the Peloponnese, are pretty good at sports because they will do great in the Olympics. In 747 BC, Saduri II goes east. He is... Uh, I, I've looked at later events here, and I think that Sadur is trying to control the Maneans. The Maneans are very divided. They have uh, a great number of different lords controlling them. And the Rarchans and the Assyrians are... The Assyrians used to try to take over this area, but they are not now. But now Urartu is trying to expand here, and thus encountering also the Persians and the Medes. But uh, the Urartian army makes a deep thrust eastwards into Puladi against the royal city of Ljubljuni. And Saduri boasts that he set up an inscription there, but archaeologists have not found this. Uh, and this is as far east. Um, there is controversial where this is, but it has been identified as far east as remote Iranian Azerbaijan in a place called Sikandel. And that's a lot, uh, that's a, a long way east. So that's far more east than the Assyrians have ever been. But we have found the remains of a large city and uh, of an Urartian fortress. But this remains a bit controversial. But Saruri II wins and returns with prisoners and booty. So now Saduri is creating his power north 
west into Anatolia and east as far as Iranian Azerbaijan. So uh, Urartu doing great. Yeah, they seem to be on top of their game. Yeah, and uh, our friends, the Greeks, also have something to report for this period. And uh, this is, of course, Greek dating is a lot worse than Mesopotamian dating or Rotian dating. But somewhere around this time, usually dated to 747 BC, there is a revolt in Corinth. And Corinth is definitely becoming a heavyweight city-state. And there's been a king in Corinth of the clan Bacchiadae. Please correct my pronunciation of this, listener. <laughs> but this clan revolts against its own king, Telestus, in this year. Uh, so they, they throw out the king, and then they decide to take power communally. So a hundred adult males of this Bacchiade clan takes power over Corinth. So at the, this phase of expansion by Corinth, the growing city-state is to be ruled by a council. And they elect a leader annually. And he is called a Prytanis. And then they select a Polymarchus. And his job is to lead the Corinthian army. And Corinth has to have an army because it's uh, overpopulating quickly. Because conditions in Greece are now perfect. The Dark Ages has been bad, but now the climate is exactly right. Uh, agriculture is going great. So Corinth has to expand somewhere just to feed its population, which is growing very fast. So is this sort of like a proto-Senate? Yeah, well, this is a good, uh, this is a good piece of evidence for the, uh, the way the Greeks will experiment with the, the rulers. So how do you rule a city-state? And we will see every kind of alternative in Greece. But this is an early one. And it's kind of like a Senate. You have to be of this clan to be in the council. But uh, that's sort of similar to what the early Senate in Rome was. So then you have to be a one of 30 clans, but or 30 families. but. Here you have to be of this one giant clan, so it rules Corinth. And Corinth will figure in our story quite a bit. But we'll go back to Rartu in 746 BC. Saduri II attacks Kumuk. And Kumuk is not an unknown place. This is fairly well documented. It's in the borderland between Urartu and Assyria. So this is very close to the Assyrian heartland. And Kumuk has paid tribute to Assyria plenty of times when Assyria was strong. And there's a ruler called Kushtapashta... Sorry, <laughs> I, I can do this. <laughs> Kushatashpi. Kushatashpi is well known from Assyrian records. And um, he doesn't want to... He has, now he hasn't paid tribute to the Assyrians for years. And now he doesn't want to pay tribute to anyone else. So he fights back. And uh, several of his dependencies fall. It's Uita, Kalpa, which is modern Halfetti on the bank of the Euphrates, and Paralini. It falls, and then Kushataspi Kushat has to yield to Saduri II. 
and he pays a tribute and Sarduri records that this tribute was there is a measurement called Minas, I should know how much this is but he, um, Sarduri gets 40 minuses of gold, 800 minuses of silver, 300 cloths, 2000 copper shields and 1535 copper cups and then of course Kushta Kusha Taspi, God, I can't pronounce that name, <laughs> is forced to swear allegiance to Sarduri II and join the anti-Assyrian alliance that Sarduri is organizing. This seems to be the perfect time for the Rochians to actually attack Assyria, but they are really scared. They know how good the Assyrians are at fighting. And Urartu can beat anyone except Assyria, but Assyria fights on a different level. So Saduri wants everything to be completely right before he goes into Assyria. But he wants to kill the empire. And he's making alliances with all the border states in the north, in the northwest, in the northeast of the empire. So he is, Urartu is pretty much now sitting like a hat with tentacles over Assyria. And uh, Arpad, Melid, and Gurgum states we have all talked about, Neo-Hittite states in Syria, they, uh, they are joined with Urartu now. And there is a big anti-Assyrian alliance. And they're all waiting for the order from Sadur II to take out the empire. They all want to get rid of the Assyrians forever. It's about uh, time. I'm a bit... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, it's about time. I mean, <laughs> if ever you had a chance, this yeah, isn't... this is the chance. Right. I am a little surprised that we don't hear about the Phrygians yet. The Phrygians are west of the Rachians in what is today Turkey, and uh, they there is probably a tribal people called the Mushki between Urartu and the Phrygians, but the Phrygians will become very important in the seven tens. And they are so powerful in the 710s that it's strange that nobody's talking about them now in the 740s. Because they didn't come from nowhere. Right. They must have had a pretty powerful kingdom in the mountains at this point. That's true. But may maybe the Phrygians are expanding eastwards from the middle of Turkey at this point. And when they enter our story, they will have a, a king that is probably more famous than any Assyrian king ever. Oh, I think I know who it is. Uh, who is it? King Midas. Yes, King Midas himself will enter our story. I think we'll name an episode after him in the Seven Tens. Makes sense. Oh, speaking of gold, I found yeah. out how much uh, Amina was. Oh, how much is it? It is one and a quarter pounds. Also, you can divide that into point. 57 kilos. Oh, so it was like 20 kilograms of gold. Yes, which is a lot of gold. That's a When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. A lot of gold. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's about 18 troy ounces. So yeah. that's wow. that's a lot. <laughs> wow. And then that... eight hundred minas of silver. Good grief. Wow. So these uh, small kingdoms, they are uh, also rich, some of them. Uh, in seven forty five BC, Sadur II decides to go on two wars. He goes into Mania. Uh, to the east of the Assyrian Empire and captures the city of Dardani. And he also attacks the kingdom Eriaki in the north, taking a vast number of prisoners, horses, and cattle. In uh, 744 BC, we also have the ninth Olympiad. Oh, Olympic Games! More and we games. have a victor. It's Sedonokos from Messenia who wins the stadium race. The Messenians are sure are winning a lot of the Olympics. Uh, they sure are, but they will run into problems soon. In uh, 744 or 743 BC, or both, Sadur II goes on war again. But we have details for one campaign, and it's unclear which year this is. Uh, he campaigns with the Rajan army into Kulkai and burns the royal city of Ildamusha. He also attacks Uiteruki and destroys the fortress of Iriani and takes a lot of booty. And now he is in place. His plan is complete. He is now set to attack the Assyrian Empire. But he will not do that in this episode. Because he will do it in the next episode. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little about the Phoenicians. They are around in what is today Lebanon on the coast. The traders and seafarers. We have been talking about them since 10th century BC. And of course they've been around for much longer. Of uh, all the people in the Middle East. They survived the Bronze Age collapse of 1200 BC. And... They are colonizing the Mediterranean, but their colonies are incredibly hard to date. The Greek colonies that will come, uh, we have seen a few Greek colonies, and there will be a lot more Greek colonies in the 730s BC. 
and the Greek colonies are easier to date. They leave more traces archaeologically and we have pretty reliable records for the Greek colonies. But the Phoenician records are all lost and they don't leave as much trace. They don't colonize to conquer, they colonize to trade. Uh, when you find a Phoenician artifact, you don't know if it got there by long distance trade or if there was actually a Phoenician there uh, selling it or using it. So uh, I've looked into this very recently and uh, the, the dates are horrible for the Phoenician colonies. We placed the first colony in the 9th century BC, but that's, that's contested. The, the solid evidence are from the 6th century BC, but that would make them colonize after the Greeks. And it seemed to me that they did it before the Greeks did. So I think, but this is my personal opinion, that the Phoenicians are on all the important islands all over the Mediterranean in 740s, in the 740s BC. Uh, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that they are on Sicily. And we know that they are on Carthage. Uh, they are in Carthage. But at this point, Carthage is just one Phoenician colony out of many. And of course, we will get back to Greek colonization in the 730s BC. We'll spend a whole episode on it. Uh, but there are a little more we have to mention about Greek before we get into the empire. In 743 BC, the first Mycenaean War starts, maybe? <laughs> the, the first Mycenaean War will be the topic of a full episode from us. But um, the dates are terrible. This could have happened like 30 years later. But we will use the dating of Pausanias um, and uh, we'll just talk about the first Messenian War in that episode. So let's leave it there. But we will see that the last Messenian victor in the Olympic Games wins the Olympics in 736 BC. And there will be five straight wins for the Messenians from 752 to 736. And that makes me believe that the war started after 736 BC, because they shouldn't have much time to right. focus on sports when they get involved in this Messenian war. That makes sense. It will take a lot of their attention, but it will also go on for a super long time. So maybe they could like go to the Olympics. There was the Olympic peace during the Olympics, so and it's not far away from Messenia, so maybe they did. Uh, I also have to mention uh, Eubea. Eubea, this gigantic island, the second biggest island outside Greece after Crete, still the best place to be in Greece. Old Eritrea, Chalcis, uh, Lafkandi, these two cities are the most powerful city-states in Greece. They had their first colony in 825 BC, and uh, it's still the place to be in Greece. And somewhere in this decade, they found the colony of Kumae in Italy. It's in the Bay of Naples. And they were already there in Pithecuse. And Chalcis of Eubea is credited as the mother city of Kumae. But it seems to be a cooperation by the 
two powerful Euboean city-states. And uh, this location of Kumai Kumai will appear in history a lot after this. It seems that the place was already inhabited and the natives were confusingly called the Cimmerians. Oh no. But they don't have any relation to Conan and they don't have any relation to the horse people of the steppes. But the Cimmerians of Kumai had an oracular tradition and Kumai has a sibyl, the Kumian sibyl, which is important to the Romans later. And in Kumai, in Roman mythology, there is an entrance to the underworld. And this is the entrance that Aeneas takes when he goes into the underworld in the Aenad, Aenid. Oh, so, wow. important place for future history. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Hmm. That's very interesting. I wonder if there's a... For it to be the entrance of the underworld, I wonder if there's something geographically that was there that made yeah, it has think to be that... some. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's the, the volcano, right? That makes this interesting. Oh, That's it it's uh, somewhere be. up on the on the volcano that you can get into the underworld. That makes sense. In I'll just run through the 740s totally before we address the empire. In 740 BC, we have a tenth Olympiad, and we have another Messenian winner. It's Dotades of Messenia. So four straight <laughs> wins for Messenia in the Olympiad. Amazing. Oh. Now we come to that place I don't want to talk about. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's, it's Egypt. Poor Egypt. <laughs> yeah, weak and divided. Many pharaohs and other people rule Egypt. It's just uh, random people. <laughs> yeah, the delta and the north uh, is, of course, more divided and weak than the south. So uh, an innumerable number of rulers in the north of Egypt. But in the south, in Thebes... Thebes is then, as we addressed when we talked about Kashta, uh, Thebes has fallen under Nubian influence. The Kushites are kind of contro in control of Thebes, or at least very influential in Thebes. So the king of Kush is Pie, and his sister, Aminirdis, is adopted by Shepenupet. And Shepenupet has very strange position in Thebes, which exists only in the 8th century BC and in the early 7th century BC. She is the god's wife of a moon. And the god's wife of a moon seems to control Thebes both religiously and administratively. So this is an ancient office, but the high priest of Thebes, the high priest of Amun, used to be even the ruler of southern Egypt. But the high priest of Amun, there is no high priest of Amun anymore. So the god's wife of Amun, a woman, is now controlling Thebes and the south, at least religiously. This office has been around for a long time. And she also has an heiress called the Divine Adoratrix of Amun. So that's sort of the, the princess to this wife of the god. And Amenirdis of Kush gets the job of being the Divine Adoratrix. And I think she has advanced over the, uh, the cult of Amun in all of Egypt, 
Um, and Amenirdis will be around for a long time. She will become the god's wife, and she is one of the women of this era we know the most about. She will later adopt uh, Pi's daughter and name her after her uh, predecessor. So uh, Pi's daughter will be Shepenupet II. Uh, but Amenirdis is the first Nubian high priestess in Egypt. And she is buried in Egypt, which is very rare for the Nubians. They, prepare, they prefer to be buried in, back in Kush in the south. But we found her tomb. She is buried uh, close to the mortuary temple of Ramses III at Medinet Habu. And she has these pyramid texts, which uh, are well preserved. So, uh, yeah, very powerful woman in southern Egypt. But now it's time to look at the Neo-Assyrian Empire. <laughs> it's, been, it's been around since 912 BC, right. or even earlier, depending on how you count. But in 746 BC, there is a revolt in the capital, in Kala itself, in Ashurnasipal's great city that he built. And the king Ashurnirari V is in the capital. So the revolt is directly aimed at the king of Assyria. And we know that there is this guy called Pul or Pulu, who is the governor of Kala. We know that Shamshi Ilu, the aging field marshal, is probably in Karshalmaneser in the northwest, a bit away from the capital. We know that there is plague in Assyria. And we also know that the Assyrian king, Ashurnirari V, he dies here. Hmm. Did he die at the hands of the revolters? We have no idea because the record goes silent. And uh, we know that when the Assyrian record goes silent, it's truly bad. <laughs> but with Ashurnirari V, the Agassite dynasty of Assyria uh, goes extinct. So this ends. I, I know we decided on this. Was I going to say dynasty or dynasty? Uh, <laughs> I never get it right. Either way, I mean, we say okay, dynasty. So let's go with but dynasty. Dynasty's fine too. <laughs> okay. So the Agassite dynasty began with a guy called Bel Barmi. And we haven't talked about Belbami because he was the king of Assyria in 1700 BC. Wow. So it's a thousand years of kings. And it in includes such mighty warriors as Tiglath Peleser I, Shalbanishar I, and Asher Ubalit I. All kings that we have not talked about because they existed in the old. Assyrian Empire in the Middle Assyrian Empire, and the line just continued into the Neo Assyrian Empire. So, this was the line of Ashurnasipal II and Shalmaneser III. And of course, this looks suspect. It's very rare for one family line to rule anything for a thousand years. And, uh, but the Assyrians are really insistent that. 
we obeyed the same family for 1,000 years. <laughs> and we will see later Assyrian kings trying to make their way into the Agassite dynasty. Uh, for example, Esarhaddon, which will be around in the next uh, century, he will claim that Belbami was his ancestor. But um, he's lying because Ashur-Nirari V is the last guy of this dynasty. And I will try to prove that later. But now we have to look at this fantastic empire and see what it accomplished before this terrible event. Uh, it's been 166 years of empire. That's decent, right? That's pretty it's, long. Yeah, it's a full-grown empire, even for much later times. We've had two truly great kings, Shalmaneser III and Ashurnasipal II. We have some quests in Babylonia, in Urartu, Syria, in Namur, everywhere, directions. The new Assyrian empire that we have seen has been an organized state like none the world ever seen before this. The Assyrian army dedicated the whole episode best arm in the world right and then we have these yearly campaigns of terror <laughs> this this could be at the end so let's review the situation the die empire is facing okay in the west in the west with, yep the new hittites and the Arameans, and they are all allying with rartu they're all like, let's take out the empire, yeah! <laughs> the Assyrians have been plaguing us, our grandfathers, our grandfathers' grandfathers. Now it's payback time! And to the north, Saduri II and Urartu, he's masterminding the death of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. To the east, the Maneans, the Persians and the Medes, they are not happy with the empire. Remember the Medes being attacked all the time? Oh yeah. Just a couple of decades before? Now they could get their payback. And in the south, we have a new strong Babylonian king. And he could easily use the Chaldeans, the Kassites, and the Arameans to fight Assyria. And they, all the tribesmen hate Assyria. And to the southeast of Assyria, past the mountains in Iran, is the ancient kingdom of Elam. And we know that Elam just hates Assyria. There is plague in the land, there is this revolt, and uh, the sources go out. That's never good. Oh, so sleep well, my sweet empire. Let scores of flayed heads sing thee to thy sleep. <laughs> and that is all for this episode. So, looks like in our next episode, a new king will seize the throne of the Empire and try to save it from its almost certain death. Yeah, and that will be a tough job, right? So even if you manage oh, yeah. to get someone to say you are the king, you have to convince everyone else in Assyria to agree because there are no Agasites anymore. <laughs> so, tough times. We have... We have a couple of reviews from Stitcher. We really want reviews. So if you are on iTunes or on Stitcher or anywhere else, actually these reviews are not from Stitcher. That's me. These are from Podbean. Podbean, yeah. We, yes. we kind of miss some of these. Some of these are fairly old. 
and um yeah, we only check iTunes, but uh, I just happened to check Podbeam because we had a great number of subscribers there. Yep. So, yeah, the uh, first one, two months ago. We'll do these in reverse chronology. Brennan and Dan are great at relaying the information. Thank you very much. I love how they seek out the ancient people for interviews. Funny, all of them sound like evil Brennan with laryngitis. That's crazy. We interview them directly. I have learned so much from you guys, and I hope that you continue. And yeah, that, that was, was from, from Shadow 0861. 0861. Thank you, Thank Shadow. You, Shadow. And the other one, it's from a year ago, says, Excellent insights. Great show about a little-known time in history before the Romans and the Greeks. Well, that was from Nathan... 88 and that was from me yep uh, you do the last one <laughs> the last one um, informative and amusing their enthusiasm makes the content have more impact and that's from Bubba Hotep <laughs> and they all gave a five hour course so thank you for that yeah. We really want to review, especially on iTunes. And please be honest. Tell us what we can improve. Tell us what we're doing right. But please review us. Yeah, we We'll can. read all the reviews. We do. And the reason we want the reviews uh, that much is because we want feedback, but it also helps in searches on iTunes especially. And there's a lot of history podcasts. So we need to get a little better uh, search ratings. Right, because the more reviews and the more people that give us stars, it actually ticks us up on the results lists. Oh, yes. All right, so please also go to YouTube, subscribe, like, share with your friends. And like Dan mentioned, please review us on iTunes. So if you want to find us, we're facebook.com slash fanofhistory on the web, thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. Stan mentioned at the top of the show, patreon.com slash fan of history. If you want to follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Horning, want to follow me, I'm at Cerulean says hi. And we want to thank you for listening. Yeah. See you guys next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fan of history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher. Because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. 
That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>